Welcome to One and Done TV. I am one of your co-hosts, Ian Hamilton. And playing himself, this is his other co-host, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that were canceled after one season. Now that's canceled with one L, even though most people spell it with two L's, and both spellings are technically correct. Isn't that right, John? Yes, that is right. No matter what the spelling, no matter what the personality you are taking on while you are spelling, we are dancing on the graves of these shows, figuring out what they did, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. And today we are talking about 2016's experimental sketch comedy Netflix extravaganza, The Characters. Uh, But before we do that... We're going to talk a little bit about what else we've been watching. Ian, what have you been throwing in front of your eyes? On the plane back from Australia, I found myself watching the Tom Hanks starring Ron Howard directed Angels and Demons for some reason. What? Well, I had read the book as a kid and I liked it and I couldn't think of anything else to watch. And I was like... Oh, I wonder what this uh, mystery was again. I guess I'll just put it on and see what happens. And for a movie that like looks really good like that, and it is pretty well directed, um, it's a bad movie. Yeah, I I can't remember a single frame of Angels and Demons. Can you regale me with uh, the plot? Well, you see, there's this longtime battle between science and the Catholic Church. Okay, we're not going into a history lesson. Give me one oh, sentence. Okay. Um, there was this guy on fire, and I turned it off in the middle of it because <laughs> he was really screaming. It was uh, getting bloodier and killier than I thought it would be. And How do you feel about watching that kind of stuff on planes? Very weird. I almost never watch anything on planes. I almost exclusively play my Nintendo Switch. I tend to accidentally watch things that are very either sexually or violently graphic. You know, like I put it on, I I try to watch new things on planes. And then there's just like one scene with a swinging body part right as like a kid's walking down the aisle. And I have to throw my phone straight into my lap. And the crazy thing is they censor movies for planes. No, they don't. Not anymore. Not anymore. Oh, when did they stop doing that? Like when you were able to choose what you could watch. They don't censor as much anymore. That makes sense. Because now there's a huge on-demand library that people can choose from. And so if you don't want to watch something graphic with language, you don't have to. And whenever they broker a deal with Cinemax, all bets are going to be off. But the other thing I wanted to bring up was Dave Pasquazy improv Chicago legend was in Angels and Demons as a completely serious Italian secret service agent. Do you think they just saw his last name? That's quite easy. Mm -hmm. And then he gets murdered in a really brutal way. Was he the guy that was on fire? No, he wasn't. Was he the man on fire with Denzel Washington? No, you're thinking of the Equalizer starring Queen Latifah which has been renewed for another season. Wait, but also Dave Pasquazy, I've been watching Veep again, 
loving it. It's even better than I remember. There's this line that he has that I put up on Instagram because I think it's so funny. And he restoried that. And I think we got a few extra listeners from that. So thank you, Dave Pasquazi. Woo. John, what have you been watching? I have been riding the high of Babylon. I am part of the Babylon hive. Yes, the device consider me Sodom and Gomorrah because I have been fully indoctrinated into the brain of Damien Chazelle, who is one of my favorite directors. Whiplash is one of my favorite movies of the last like 50 years. Let's just say of all time, because the movies, the 50 years before that, I don't think are hitting your top 10 either. Yeah, I guess that's fair. I just wanted to sound smart. The way that Babylon just explodes into your senses is so commendable. And the first like hour of that movie is one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. It is just so beautifully chaotic and funny and interesting. And then there's two more hours and those are very good as well. But the... Margot Robbie performance is just manic and wild and just visually it's completely stunning. And I was so enthralled for 190 minutes of that. I loved it. I really need to do a couple double feature days where I go to Randhurst, buy a ticket for one movie, see another movie right after the first movie. And only then will I have seen all the movies I want to see because I am out of it lately. There are so many more like two and a half hour plus movies that I've seen this year than I feel like I've seen any other year. I've seen Mm. Avatar 2. I've seen Black Panther 2. I've seen Babylon and others that I can't think of right now. But man, it just feels like I've seen so many long movies this year. And many of them are very good. I think it's because we didn't really get to go to the movie theater for a couple of years, except for you. You were the only one at the movie theater. I was masked and happy. You were also the only person there. I saw Sonic the Hedgehog in June of 2020. <laughs> wow, you really had to get out of the house. I really did. It, but I did like Sonic. One thing I do want to shout out really quickly before we move on is uh, the documentary Mr. Organ, made by one of my favorite journalists, David Ferrier, who you may know from Dark Tourist or from the documentary Tickled. Uh, I saw it when I was in Australia. I don't think it's been released in the U.S. yet. And it is a strange person that this movie is... uh, detailing and an upsetting person and it really shows the problems with uh the arrogance of people these days saying whatever they want and thinking there's no consequences yeah i've never heard of that so it is uh, unavailable to pretty much anyone in the u.s then i would guess well it was first released in new zealand then it was released in australia so i think it's just got you know, slow international releases because it's, um, you know, an independent movie. Classic Ian just flexing his privilege, just comes back from a different continent and gets to tout all the things that he got to see. Meanwhile, I am single-handedly trying to keep Babylon alive. This movie is a box office bomb. It has been divisive as hell. And you know what? I will be the one to get its legacy to live on. But until then, it's showtime. Five, four... 
three, two, one, showtime! In 2016, Netflix gave eight up-and-coming comedians their own comedy specials. But they weren't your run-of-the-mill stand-up specials, they were sketch comedy specials. Despite its unique premise and providing a launching pad for several blossoming careers, The Characters was canceled after one eight-episode season. John, did you watch this when it came out? I was looking at sort of my watch history, and I had watched most of most of them, which is interesting. Yeah, I had given up on a couple sort of partway through, and I never watched uh, the last one, I don't think. So it was an interesting experiment and one that I did want to partake in. This group of comedians, which we'll go through one by one in a little bit, I kind of see this group as sort of the second generation of like New York UCB talent, like the first generation being like the Paul Shears and the Rob Hubels of the world. And this next one being sort of one that leans a lot more into stretching out the joke, heightening the joke, making things that are a little bit sort of bigger swings and something that's kind of intentionally alienating an audience, which I guess like live comedy in New York after like the turn of the millennium was very into as well. I don't know. You were a New Yorkian, a New Yorker. The New York comedy scene pretty much has two types of people. And those are people that are just hitting the mics every night, performing all the time, trying to climb the ladder, trying to get their sitcom deal. And they're like professional comics, you know, that they know how to work a crowd. They have the routine, they have their characters and they're playing the game. And then there's uh, the other type of comedian that hates the audience, hates themselves and comes up with some really uh, unique stuff. Yeah. It's stuff for them, whereas the other group is like stuff for a larger audience, I would say. Yeah, I I think that this show had a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. And I would say it even had a couple performers that were able to do their own thing and were able to play the game at the same time. By watching it, you can probably tell who's who. Yeah. Did you watch this when it was originally aired no i didn't but i always meant to um i think that netflix like 2012 to 2016 2017 had a very interesting um comedy throw things at the wall and see what sticks sort of attitude you know they had a couple shows going in oh what was the one in chicago it lasted three seasons and every episode was different much like this joe swanberg's easy but that was more like dramatic too. And that was like much more leaned into like the mumblecore kind of thing. It did use a lot of comedians though. Yeah. You know, there's a Mark Marin episode. There is a great episode with Joe Latruglio and a bunch of other comedians. I know the guy that plays Jonah in Veep is in it, but uh, where it's this neighborhood that... <laughs> Someone keeps stealing their boxes and they form like a neighborhood watch just to try to catch this guy. And they all sort of Lord of the Flies, like turn on each other in the middle of it. And there just felt like there's this period of Netflix where they were um, giving shows to people that were 
from the comic stages of New York, LA, and Chicago and telling them that they could pretty much do what they wanted, right? Yeah, and this seems to be sort of a perfect example of that. For those that aren't familiar with it, the characters basically each episode is driven by one comedian. They wrote the entire thing. They play multiple characters throughout it. And it really seems like Netflix just gave these performers a consistent budget and said, do with this what you will. Because there is a little bit of a structure to each of them and they all have the same director. But they take this idea of fill a half hour with characters and some of them have a form. Some of them are just kind of loose collections of sketches. It really is driven by the sort of star of this episode. Yeah. And whoever the star is, is always credited as being the writer as well. Um, I know they had consulting writers. I think those were just either friends of the performer or some people that just helped keep each episode slightly consistent so it seemed like the same show even though every episode was different yeah yeah and even some of the same actors but i feel like that was kind of a friends thing you know like john early's in caper lance caper lance is in john early's john reynolds from search party is in like three or four of them it really seemed like this they were just pulling from this sort of pool of actor friends and kind of trying to give their their buddies different jobs throughout yes. each of the episodes. It was just unique in that I couldn't really find a showrunner for the show. Like, it had its own producers, and I know that the show was creative and developed by the Netflix comedy development team. Mm-hmm. It's not like I, Ian Hamilton, came to Netflix and was like, I got a great idea for this show. And I'm going to produce it, and I'm going to make it, and I'm going to run it, and uh, we'll just give all these people their own episode. It it wasn't quite like that. It's pretty uh, unique on the back end, as far as I can tell. Yeah. This seems like it was sort of the comedy development team's infancy as well. And I'm sure we'll get into where Netflix comedy was later on when we're talking about why the show was canceled. But... This show really reminded me of the sort of annual tried and true staple of at least Chicago comedy. And I'm sure this was true in New York comedy as well, but of like the SNL showcase. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Did you ever attend those? Actually, I never did. They're fun. To give the listeners a little bit of context, SNL auditions have for the last 45, 50 years, however long SNL has been going on, it's basically you get five minutes and you are just supposed to throw like three or four characters at them and like one impression and you only get five minutes. And so what these sort of satellite cities or, you know, bigger comedy scenes in LA and Chicago would do is to prep for SNL producers coming to their city Theaters like I.O. and Second City and the the Annoyance, they would create these sort of showcases for SNL producers to highlight some of the most kind of what they deemed the most promising talent. And each of them would sort of give their five minutes. And the characters feels very much like an extension of that. You know, Mm -hmm. you get a half hour, you get 
a budget, you get say in what characters you are going to put out there, and maybe this will lead to other opportunities potentially after the characters drops on Netflix. There's also this thing in all three cities of any comedian, you know, improv, sketch, stand up, put on a one person show, and then it is your veiled SNL audition. Mm-hmm. Just in case any kind of producer comes and sees it, they know how um, well-rounded you are. And I got to say, as like an improv sketch person, I did get into stand-up, but it is strange to me how many stand-ups get into sketch because I think of acting and comedy and sketch as being sort of uh, all circling the same thing. Mm -hmm. But I think of stand-up as being like, yeah, you're up there and you're performing, but you're yourself and you're coming up with all these different, like a routine is different than a scene to me. Yeah. So it's always kind of interesting to see when they try to blend it together. And to me, I could definitely see who was the stand-up doing this stuff and who were the sketch performers, you know? Yeah. Some of these people clearly were just trying these characters for the first time, like on camera. And some of them had sort of developed these characters and were extending them through sort of a bigger budget. But I think we will get a little bit more into who these actors were and what they did right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. Welcome back to the show. We're going to now go over our favorite segment out of five. All of our segments are our favorites. They're all equally the best. This one's called Highlights. 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 All right. The first episode is spearheaded by Lauren Lapkus. How familiar are you with her, John? Very. Uh... I think she's hilarious. It was going into this show, I think, especially around 2016, she was arguably the most famous. She had just done Jurassic World a year earlier, and she was already on Orange is the New Black. So she had already sort of carved out a place for herself within Netflix. So it makes sense that she would be kind of the leadoff episode. Honestly, she was one of the reasons that I wanted to watch it when I first started to watch the show in 2016. Definitely. I was familiar with her at the time. I was like, oh, her, she's great. I'll watch that. Mm-hmm. And then I, I've i been an in and out fan of Comedy Bang Bang over the past 10 years. And uh, some of these characters she played on her episode, she's developed only in an audio format before that <laughs> and then brought them to screen, which I thought was pretty funny and cool. Yeah, she has also been a co-host with Paul F. Tompkins and Scott Ackerman on Freedom. I love Freedom. You don't listen to that, do you? I don't. I just know it as a podcast. 
I always tell uh, Natalie that I'm going to, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to hang out with my friends. But really, it's I'm listening to Threedom. That sounds It's pretty right. sad. Well, it's even sadder that you don't have friends. So just sorry you don't have friends. Even my good ones hate me. Look at you. I loathe you. Hate is too soft of a word. Lauren Lapkiss, though, also had a podcast before Threedom, I think, that was called With Special Guest Lauren Lapkiss, where she would have celebrities come on and they were supposed to be interviewing a character that she was putting on. So right. she is very they would ad- host the show. Yeah. So she is very adept at creating characters. And how would you kind of describe her style? Um, she's just like very like this. Like she's very fast, but she's like, oh no, I'm putting I'm putting all my voice through my nasal cavity like this. And uh she's very funny though. Like I did it poorly. But I think that's her energy that she always brings to her characters. That's interesting that you say it in that way, because now that I think about it, it is a very like voice first character. Yes. Yeah. Like she has a teenage boy character who's always like down here and he's talking like like, this. Mom, what are you doing? So it starts with the voice and the way that she kind of runs her episode reminded me a lot of this improv form called the LaRonde, where you have, for example, characters A and B are in a scene, and then character A leaves, and the new scene has person B interacting with new person C, and then you go through it like that. So her characters would kind of drift in and out of each other's scenes in that way, like that. So for example, she's got a celebrity character who's on a dating show, and then like one of her other characters will be watching that show and then go on to do their other thing it's very it's a lot more fluid than some of the other episodes are i liked how uh anytime her character who with very unblended kardashian type makeup you know would say your 15 minutes are up to her dates and that's how she would kick them off the show i really like that uh that line I think it's interesting that you think of her as very voice first because John Early, who did episode two, he is very mannerisms first. Yeah. His characters have such exact, precise movements to them. He hits out of the park the opposite of what you should do as as someone acting on camera, which is usually you want to be more still. You want to do less. Because it's easy to look, I don't know, kind of like manic or shaky or whatever if you're not totally controlled while you're on camera. But he, like the way he'll move his eyes, his nose, and then like shift his body and maybe like run his fingers down his coat in like a nervous way or something like that. He'll do all of that before saying his next line. And it's so integral to what he does as a comedian. I was uh, texting our mutual friend Torian Miller about this because when I visited him in LA uh, last March, he showed me Search Party, which I'd always meant to watch, but I hadn't. And he was just like praising John Early the whole time about his mannerisms and his physicality. And this was the first time I think I was really able to appreciate that. Search Party is incredible. And I was looking it up Search Party premiered November of 2016, whereas this premiered in March of 2016. So just before that, yeah, John Early masters this sort of character who is uptight, but doesn't want you to think that he's uptight. 
So he'll try to <laughs> control the situation in very obvious ways that he thinks are very subtle. And I would say that his sketches and scenes probably run longer than some of the other ones, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think he only had three characters and then also played himself. A version of himself, yeah. Well, right. I mean, that happened in a couple of the episodes, but the version of himself had like three solid scenes. And they were funny because it was him hosting his wedding shower. Rehearsal dinner. Thank you. And uh, as someone who didn't really have a big wedding myself, I wouldn't know what it's like. But- he was trying to get his friend to retell this funny story. But then as they're telling, he's like, no, that's not how you told it. Like, no, this is the punchline, not that. And he's like such a control freak about it that uh, I just, I read this interview with him where someone was asking him if he is a control freak in social situations because of that sketch. And he was like, I absolutely am. And I think you can tell from every character I play. (laughs) That makes sense. It's a little bit more sort of scattered to editing wise, like the characters are just kind of interspliced, which is very different from the third episode, which is Henry Zabrowski, which is one of the more thematic episodes because he plays this sort of heightened jerk version of himself who has a near-death experience and he has a conversation with this sort of deity that takes him through like his quote unquote past lives. And that's how he sort of frames his characters. So he plays like a caveman version of himself. And then it's all, but for me, that was all just kind of variations on this same sort of brash, loud mouth, inconsiderate person who he started the episode with. There wasn't as much. Right fluidity i think between or differences between the characters right uh one of them was a version of himself that was completely naked uh asking a woman out on a date and that was a pretty long scene the only real characters he played were you know racially problematic and i'm actually a little bit confused as to why netflix did not pull his episode the way they pulled other shows yeah one of uh, my in the summer of 2020 yeah one of my uh sort of runner-up dunzo awards was the mickey rooney award which i was going to give to oh, him man. because there is a very obvious like brown face and you know using of very stereotypical accents to and he calls it out too at one point, but at the same time, I was just like, yikes, just because you call it out does not mean that it's okay for you to do this. Uh, yes, I completely agree. And it is definitely this pre uh, fall 2016, uh, fall 2017 style of comedy when, you know, I'm going to say it, it's a buzzword and I, I'm not going to put anything on it one way or another, but when cancel culture, you know, started really gaining steam uh, as something that we think about when it comes to the content that we consume and is creative and whatever. I do think that really was a shift in comedy. Whereas before it's just like, Oh what? But like I'm being racist, but it's ironic to being like, you know what? We, uh, we just shouldn't do that anymore. Absolutely. 
this show is a marked right before that. You know yeah. what I mean? I think if the show wasn't canceled, he would be, this would be an episode. I think it's something that they honestly kind of forgot about. Oh, me too. Because even on their IMDb page, when you watch the trailer, it's the first image that comes up is him in brownface. Yikes. I will also say, I know that the episode is stained by it, but I do like him as a performer. I don't know if I like him as much as a writer. He had the longest episode. 40 minutes of it was too much for the premise being so, you know, it wasn't really like a unique premise. I think the way that the other ones were, it was like you said, very cinematic. So I do like him in other shows, but I, I think he maybe had the, the one I liked the least for many reasons. Yeah. He had like some good smaller roles in like the Wolf of Wall Street. I remember him from, and he, he could do, he could do a scene. I think. Yeah. As an actor, but as a writer, I thought it was one of the weaker ones. Well, you're right. He has a show on Adult Swim called Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell, which is a very strange show where he plays a demon, you know? And I'm like, great. You're great there. Stay there. The one other bigger thematic episode is the fourth one, which is Caper Lance episode, which is sort of centered on this artist kind of avant-garde, very sort of modern, inspirational, but kind of corporatized uh, gallery artist who, you know, makes big statements about society, but is also very full of themselves and also not afraid to just like sell out. Like it all sort of leads up to this event where this artist, uh, Denise St. Roy, is building up to this campaign launch collaboration that she's doing with Sprite but she plays like her husband and the gallery owner that puts up her stuff as well as like some fans of her stuff too so all of them are sort of feeding into the one character this felt like she was pulling a lot from personal experience like I have to think that she has at some point in her life been involved in the art world like that um, because she found many aspects of this one person's circle to make fun of, taking the classes, being in the gallery, all that stuff. And then even the husband who plays their daughter's softball coach seemed like she probably had a pretty mean softball coach growing up, you know? Yeah, it could also be influenced by like the episode starts with these sort of talking heads from a few different real life uh, figures that are sort of tangentially related to the art world and activism like Alicia Silverstone and Banksy and Jemima Kirk and Frank Gehry. And one of them is their last name was Berlant, which I think might be her dad who is credited as an artist. So she could have that sort of, and that's very, if you've seen any of Caper Lance other stuff too, that's very much her sort of MO. Like, I'm going to be pretentious, but I'm also just like taking a knife to the pretensions and undercutting everything that I'm saying always. Like, she just had a off-Broadway show this season, this past season in 2022, that was directed by Bo Burnham, and it was called Kate. And while I was reading reviews of it prepping for this episode, And it seemed to be very much like it's a show about 
Caper Lance playing an actor named Kate putting on a one person show. And the lobby is apparently filled with like all these artifacts from Kate's life, including Caperland herself sitting on a stool in the middle of the lobby saying, don't look at me with a sign on it. And she's wearing sunglasses and that's how people walk into the theater. And that's the kind of energy that she sort of brings to everything and definitely to this episode as well. I also wanted to uh, shout out Rebecca and Miranda Groose who play her daughters, daughter, twin daughters, singular, right? They're twins, but they legally got them to be one person named Jenny. Uh, And I did the Franco class and the movie horror time with them. No way. And so I know them. They were great. Yeah, they're cool. And uh, I thought they did really well in this. And just a little anecdote from uh, my horror movie experience with James Franco in that class was uh, that one of the writers was writing these twin characters for them. And then Franco was like, what are we doing writing twins into the script? We don't have twins in the class. And then someone would be like, "Uh, yes, we do. (laughs) And he was really embarrassed. And I guess it just goes to show how much he was paying attention. And that led to his downfall. It all started there. It more ended there, but uh, yeah. (laughs) The next three episodes, I think, are much more sort of sketchy. You know, it is much more loose. Uh, the first one being Natasha Rothwell. Uh, I thought hers were really fun. Um, again, it there was a sort of central character clearly based on her going to jury duty, and it would cut to a few different things throughout it. But were you familiar at all with Natasha Rothwell before? I definitely recognize her, but I think it's because I've seen her in things since then. Um, Like, what has she been in since then? I know it's one or two big things. Oh, she was in the White Lotus the first season. That was, she was the spa worker. Of course. She was in the White Lotus, right, as the masseuse. The homeless person that she plays in the first big scene, at first I was like, okay, homeless person on the train scene. But then the hook of it was all that this homeless person had read Game of Thrones and was holding people hostage with spoilers. Uh, not not literally holding them hostage, but would be like, either give me money or I'll spoil Game of Thrones for you. But then would look at other books that they're reading and be like, oh, I know that one too. Someone was reading Harry Potter and they're like, Dumbledore dies on page 523 or something. And then when she spoiled 50, oh no, when she spoiled Game of Thrones for a deaf woman because she learned ASL through classes she took at the library because they had air conditioning, it was a really inspired scene that I started out wanting to hate. I fully agree with that. And I think it's because both her and Paul W. Downs, who is the next one, and Tim Robinson, who is the one after that. Their sketches, because they were so isolated, I think, from each other within the episode, they were able to heighten a lot more within each of the individual sketches. Like, that that episode, I think, is a perfect example. Paul W. Downs, who people will know from, like, Broad City and who... Hacks. And Hacks. He definitely had these characters a little bit more lived in, I think, than some of the other performers. And that was sort of emphasized by the way his was structured, which 
was kind of framed by a filming of one of those one person shows that you were talking about earlier that he was doing at like, I think it was UCB. Yeah, it was the one in Chelsea. I'd been there before. Mm -hmm. So he introduced some of those characters in that sort of UCB environment and some of them he developed later for this thing and some of them they just filmed the ucb performance of it for the special yeah i um went back and forth on his episode too because he does big characters and i think he he's well-rounded when he does them but i like his first interaction with the audience i was like eh, i think he's getting too many laughs but then he had some really precise goofy stuff that he did with some of his characters as well that he really surprised me with. And uh, I'll highlight from that is the detective, the blind detective who rides a Segway and smells and touches everything in order to solve the crimes was, again, could have started out bad, but I actually ended up, I thought it was great. And I think that that character in particular highlights how lived in those characters were or at least how established they were for Paul W. Downs because I think what he was using the sort of live segments of that for were to amplify some characters or jokes that would really only work in a theater setting and then he would expand on them a little bit more in the film segments so for example that blind character the way that that's introduced in the live sort of portion of it is he's just on a Segway and just kind of riding through the audience. If that was just like on a set and filmed, that would not be funny. But because he's like bumping into people and you're hearing the laughter and the sort of uncomfortable um, reaction from the audience, it works. And then they elevated a little bit more by having the blind detective solve a case by licking things and talking to people and doing shootouts and car chases. Right. And it was really, it was gratifying to see the character was like a funny little joke, like, okay, blind guy in a segue. Clearly there's a lot of things wrong with this. But then when he showed up in a scene about 10 minutes later and had a really, I don't want to say deep scene, um, a, a scene that heightened continually for about five minutes was a cool treat and a cool way to um, expand and a cool way to lay out the episode. Definitely. Then there was Tim Robinson. If anyone thinks, if anyone has seen, I think you should leave. It's basically more of that is his episode. Oh, I texted Justin. I was like, have you seen his episode of the characters? Because Justin loves, I think you should leave. And I was like, drop everything and watch it right now because you will absolutely love it. You, I can see why he got his own show after this. Yeah, this was right after he left SNL where he was a writer and I think a featured player for a couple seasons. And Only then he one. did. No, three. He was a featured player. He was a featured player for one. Yes. Right. Exactly. And he was a writer for a few more. And. Then he did this, and then the next year he did two seasons of Detroiters, which, have you ever watched Detroiters? I have not, but I've always wanted to, because I also love Sam Richardson. It's so good. And they're a great team. They are a great team. And then I think You Should Leave was right after Detroiters. 
And this is definitely the origin of it. He plays the same kind of angry, disgruntled character that's still kind of endearing because of how sad he is thing. He just, he does that so well. So, so well. Oh yeah, he's got his own brand and he kills it in this episode. Every scene starts out strange and ends far, far stranger than you could have thought. And even though he takes the joke too far, it doesn't get old. And I don't know how he does it. No, it's incredible. Speaking of incredible, the last episode structurally, I think, is incredibly impressive. This is by a performer, Dr. Brown, and it's all done in one shot, which is really cool to see just from a filmmaking perspective. I I mean, I think there are some hidden edits in there, but it is very Birdman-like. It's... I think it was only two years after Birdman. Mm-hmm. And it's right, pretty much only one shot. You can see him changing wigs while he moves through crowds and stuff like that. They have all these really fun ways of transitioning from scene to scene so that it doesn't it doesn't usually hide it though. Like no. we all see what they're doing, but you can still be incredibly impressed by the way that they're doing it. Yeah, because it all takes place basically in one block and he goes in and out of buildings depending on who he's interacting with. Like he's a plumber who goes into somebody's apartment and then he takes multiple people as multiple characters back to his apartment. And that's all basically done through wig changes and putting on a shirt or taking off a shirt. Uh, And towards the end too, a little bit more cleverly, like they change the photo on the apartment on like next to the door to indicate that it is a different character. So it's a very clever episode. I think it's more clever than it than is it is funny. funny. Yeah. I assumed we would be on the same page about that. It was a really cool, impressive thing. And I was like, this would be a great YouTube channel to have on. <laughs> and just like, you just see this guy doing this crazy, cool, interesting, slightly slow stuff, a little gimmicky, but it was very impressive nonetheless. And I don't want to take away from it because it's the least funny of all of them probably possibly well we might have some other superlatives to give out in addition to least funny after this commercial break when we have some dunzo awards and now a word from our sponsors It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show that we watch. It could be the best. It could be the worst. It could be the most. It could be the weirdest. Whatever it may be, we have decided to give each of these shows their just desserts. Each of us get two Dunzo Awards to give out to whatever we feel like it. Ian, what's your first Dunzo Award? My first Dunzo Award goes to the saddest strip I've ever seen, which... Oh my was gosh. Lauren Lapkus had a one-off character that was a stripper, a pretty bad stripper at that, who was stripping to uh, Ben Folds 5 singing Brick, which oh my God. is a song about him and his girlfriend getting an abortion that was and like such... lying about it to their parents and then telling them. And it, it was, was such a good, good, good sketch because 
the song itself is so sad, and the way that she yes. plays it is so dead-eyed and sad. And that stripper character does not say a word. But all she does when it goes into the chorus of the song is she walks up to this guy alone at this strip club, played by Connor Ratliff. If, and if you haven't listened to his Dead Eyes podcast, it's incredible. She sort of straddles him, but kind of like puts her knees just on the armrest part of the chair and humps the it's air. It's not humping as much as it is vibrating. Yeah. Like. <laughs> I was going to say with like a margin of about two inches because it's just this like, like if you were looking at her humping on a Richter scale, the earthquake size would be about a 0.6. It would just be <laughs> that kind of like tiny ripple, but she's so dead eyed and it, oh. And it really broke up the episode really well because she plays these like sort of bigger, bigger voice characters and to all of a sudden have this minute or two where the character doesn't say anything and it could easily be a one joke joke that she's able to just keep going with. You know, I think stuff like that really highlights when comedians really know what they're doing because they know the energy needs to change and they can take something that should only be 10 seconds and make it funny for like five, you know? Yeah, absolutely. What's your first Dunzo? My first Dunzo award goes to the longest line non-theme park edition. And that goes to Paul W. Downs, who opens his episode. I guess that's one thing that we didn't talk about. The one thing that's consistent in all of the episodes is the sort of opening title sequence where... It starts with a camera on sort of the same stage with a mic, and then it goes backstage. And it says, like, starring this person, written by this person, directed, whatever. And it tends to follow them into a dressing room. And then you kind of see the differences that some of the actors take. Like, Lauren Lapkus, I think, is just, like, putting on a wig. And Tim Robinson is, like, telling a story to, like, three people in their 70s. And they're like, tell us another story, Tim. And he's like, no, we've been here long enough. You need to leave. But Paul W. Downs. <laughs> I think you should leave. Oh, there it is. But Paul W. Downs starts his by doing a line of Coke from one end of the sort of dressing room table all the way around the room, including down like a chair and on the floor. And just the breath control on it, I thought was very impressive. I know it wasn't actual cocaine. But the well, fact that he was able to commit to that in such a long way was very impressive to me. Movie magic. I believe they use uh, powdered milk for cocaine in movies. Yeah. Jonah Hill uh, snorted so much in Wolf of Wall Street that he, I don't know, had like some vitamin deficiency or something. He had some weird health thing arise, but usually it's harmless. Yeah. And I hope that it was it was harmless for our buddy PWD. This was very, I think, indicative of Paul W. Downs's episode. Like he had one sketch in that where all it was was like friends of his coming to greet him outside of an apartment, and they are bringing a baby, and he just kisses the baby on the mouth, not like with tongue or anything, and it's a real baby for about thirty seconds straight 
Well, it, it's uh, Lutz from 30 Rock yeah. and his wife, who also plays a writer in 30 Rock. So they're UCB people. And you could tell it's their baby. Yeah. Because I clocked that she was in an earlier scene. And all of a sudden, he comes up, greets them, kisses Lutz on the cheek, then kisses his wife for a little too long on the lips, and then kisses the baby for way too long on the lips. And it, it But immediately after this, it's continues the running gag of anytime he plays a horrible character there's a title credit after the scene that goes this guy died from this one thing and then shows the years he was alive for i wrote it down it said on his way home mark was mugged at gunpoint he was unharmed the following day he was hit by a stray bullet in an unrelated incident and pronounced dead at the scene (laughs) genius And one thing before we move on about that opening sequence where they're moving through the hallway is that the New York Times called it elegiac, which means relating to or characteristic of an elegy. So then I was like, okay, well, what is an elegy? (laughs) An elegy is a poem of serious reflection, typically a lament for the dead. So Mm. I thought that was a little bit pretentious for them to use the word. But I have to agree that it is elegiac. I have to give it to them. My second Dunzo goes to Natasha Rothwell has a sketch called Chiggers. And I'm saying that very delicately because the sketch is about a white woman. Oh, it's Lutz's wife going to the doctor and complaining that the little bugs, known as Chiggers colloquially, um, are giving her a rash and her... And the nurse are like, oh, so you're mad that you moved in to where they're at and that now they're bugging you and you're mad about that. And it was probably the biggest, uh, it's probably the only sketch that actually had a greater point to it, like any real satire, I think. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of like straight up satire in it. There was some other like racially motivated humor in it outside of Henry Zabrowski's brown face. Yikes. Again. Well, it's not really satire, though. I, no, I that's not satire at all. Right. I'm just saying. Um, and I just wanted to highlight that sketch from her, though, because otherwise the show as a whole felt very like sketchy 2015 we're at UCB, IO, Second City, Groundlings, whatever. Like it felt very much of its time to me. And that sketch stuck out because it was the only thing that didn't feel straight, ridiculous, or character y or over the top or whatever. I mean, it was a really funny sketch, too. I think that really helped. But it was the only thing that actually tried to say anything beyond what we're looking at, you know? Well, I will check you a little bit on that because I think Kate Berlant's, well, I will wreck you. Okay. I'm just kidding. I think Kate Berlant's uh, episode does that for the art scene in that way. Yes, that's the only sort of satire in sort of a social regard. But if you're talking about like pure satire, I mean, Kate Berlant's whole episode is sort of making fun of the high art scene. Like mm-hmm. it ends with this sprite collaboration that I talked about earlier where the sprite collaboration is literally just a like baby doll in a bird cage holding a sprite 
and it's supposed right. to be this like multi-million dollar thing and it has like people crying because of it and there's also like one of her art pieces her character's art pieces that made me laugh the hardest was uh this was a a piece this is a piece of wood from a building that i burned down <laughs> like like she had to burn it down in order to get the piece right there's, she's like legally i can't talk about it much but she burned on the building is what she couldn't say. Uh, it's interesting, John, between this and I Love Dick, I think we're finding a through line where What's you that? really, really don't like uh, highfalutin artists. I don't. And I think, the, but I think it's ripe for satire and people making fun of it. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, John, I've got a burning question for you. Well, I've got a second Dunzo to give out, so f*** right off. My burning question is, what's your second Dunzo? <laughs> My second Dunzo goes to the least trustworthy mascot, and that would be Wagyu in uh, Tim Robinson's <laughs> episode. So this was, I think, one of my favorite sketches. It was at this like corporate retreat in this big ballroom, and the entertainment for this corporate retreat was the Pointer Brothers. This was not a male cover band for the Pointer Sisters. It was three guys, Tim Robinson, Connor O'Malley, and I didn't recognize the third guy, but all they were doing was pointing at people in the audience and trying to make sure that they pointed at every single person in the audience. So they all had to raise their hands, and if they got pointed at, they would put their hands down. And so it's just them pointing. They had this mascot, Wagyu, who would go and he would take the points away. But you also couldn't touch Wagyu, and Wagyu could not touch you because of that thing that happened a couple weeks ago. But Wagyu kind of looks like it's sort of this early iteration of like gritty. And he's just this big sort of triangle of fur. Uh, just he's it, kind of like the Philly fanatic meets Grimace, the McDonald's uh purple guy. Yeah, gritty. Perfect. <laughs> I just love that sketch. And Wait, Connor that, O'Malley, was he the one with the mustache? I don't remember. Was he the taller guy or not the taller guy? He was the taller guy, I think. If it is who I'm thinking of, he's also in Joe Para, So, Oh, maybe. He's in I Think You Should Leave a few times. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. He's very funny. Well, Ian, I've got a burning question for you now that I've heard your two Dunzos and you didn't forget about mine at all. How would you rank these episodes? Woo, that's hot. I would put Henry Zabrowski at the bottom. Okay. I thought, like, he was funny, but it shouldn't have been 40 minutes, and there were a lot of problems with it. And he had, he was more of an idea guy than he was a writer or a character actor. And yeah. uh, I think plenty of people will find his stuff to be very funny. And I've known him. I've had other projects where I've enjoyed him to be on. But this one, uh, I definitely could have skipped. This was also at the bottom for me. I did not like him. Right. Um. Then I would put Dr. Brown because it was very impressive. And I got like, this guy's got a weird sense of humor. Um, It's weird and subtle, but it's well thought out. So... It's not like he's doesn't know what he's doing. He clearly knows what he's doing. Yeah. And that is impressive. It just wasn't uh, super funny. Agreed. 
I think we're going to have some differences in the rest of these, but go through the rest of yours. Um, for six, I go Kate Berlant. I thought she was very funny. I just wish it didn't focus so much on all the pretentious art. I think that got a little old to me. Um, then I would go Lauren Lapkus, who I really, I really enjoyed and I really enjoy her, but I don't know. I, I guess I thought everyone else had a little bit more going for them. Um, then I would put Paul W. Downs. Then I would put Natasha Rothwell. Then I would put John Early. Then I would put Tim Robinson. Nice. What about you? I would also put Henry Zabrowski at the bottom and then Dr. Brown above him. Then I would actually, for sixth, I would go John Early because I like his thing. I just think it can be shorter. And I think there were some really good edit points that he didn't take. Maybe because he felt like he needed to stretch it. I think that a lot of these could be shorter. Yeah. I would have liked the show a little bit better in general if they were all just 25 minutes. Yeah. I mean, I think you should leave as like 16 to 19 minutes per episode. And I think that's a great length. Right. Fifth, I would also put Lauren Lapkus. Fourth, I would put Natasha Rothwell. Third, Tim Robinson. Though I did love his stuff. For me, two, Kate Berlant, one, Paul W. Downs. I really, wow. in terms of just like laughs per minute, they were the most consistent for me. Mm, yeah, I think the Caper Lant thing, I, I liked it and I liked that it was different overall. I just, I guess I felt like it uh, last, it stayed there just too long for me. I wanted it to move on. What what did you like so much about Paul W. Downs? I think the variety was there. It clipped along, I think, the easiest. I think there were mm-hmm. a couple of the ones that were lower down that dragged a bit, especially in the middle, but he had a really good sense of variety, both visually and just in terms of tone. And yeah, I just thought like pound for pound, it made me laugh the most and the hardest. The thing about him showing how some of the characters died, like had me howling with laughter. Like the first one was a great sort of like borat e sketch where it was a show called Big Trucks with Jasper Cooch, which was a, just a great name. And he went to a monster truck rally and he would be like, do you like big trucks or small trucks? And they would say big trucks. And he would go, big trucks. And then he presumably like hooked up with this woman and then they picked him up on the side of the road. And as he said, the woman named Amber, she stole my clothes, my money, and my heart. And then they just had a title card. Jasper did find Amber two months later. She shot him four times at point blank range. Jasper Cooch, 1998 to 2016. So he was only 18 years old as well. I noticed that too. I literally looked up Paul W. Downs' age after that. I was like, no way. So just the layers of that, like just, it just built so well. That character too. I definitely appreciated that he went to a real event and played a character Borat style, um, even though maybe everyone would have known he was playing a character, but I don't know if everybody did. He literally uh, stood in the middle of the monster truck thing and just was yelling, when I say big, you say trucks, big trucks. And they did it for about 90 seconds. Well, the best part was he go big, 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 <laughs> big. And they just go trucks, trucks, trucks. Like he really had a lot of fun doing that. And I was uh, pretty aware of how, 
they edited it together because I think he really did just host some of the event as that character. And there were two or three really good jokes he had that I was like, I think that in the moment, it just felt like something funny the presenter was saying. But because they edited it together with everything else he was doing, it was like even better uh, because of what the joke is next to. Mm-hmm. Um, if that makes sense. I really liked him. I just, uh, honestly, I know he's one of the creator of hacks. I hate the way his character is going and I <laughs> like him better when he's doing the big characters than when he's playing closer to himself. I do. Yeah. I don't know. I just thought it had a much more sort of playful and fun nature than some of the other ones as well. Yeah. I totally get that. Um, John, I've got a burning question for you. Burn, baby, burn. What's up? Is there a comedian you would like to see have their own episode of characters? <laughs> Woo, that's hot. Oh, that's a fun one. <laughs> Give me a second there. And I don't think they have to be an up-and-comer either. I think it could be like, an established character actor or something as well. Someone who just gets their own half hour to do whatever they want and to play in a sandbox and be a bunch of different characters, you know? I think before she got SNL, I would have loved to see a version of this with Chloe Fineman, who I think is one of the best impressionists that SNL has ever had. And her character stuff that they did during their pandemic episodes was so inspired and so much funnier than I think anything that anyone else was doing. So the fact that she was able to pull that off with just her phone at her place in LA, I would have loved to see what she did with a little bit more structure and budget to let those characters breathe a little bit. What about you? Who would you want to see? Okay. I'm going to say Sam Richardson, actually. I know that he gets his own stuff with, you know, he's in some I think you should leave and whatever. But that guy is just always funny. He's got a much broader range than I think he's given the ability to play. I've been watching him a lot in Veep lately, too. So him as Richard Splett is just, he's so funny. He can really deliver any line. Um, but then I also have this other idea, which is, I know you're going to say he already has a million hours of footage out there, but I'm going to say Conan O'Brien because I'm loving the work he's doing post Conan, like being, uh, like being Andy Warhol in Weird Al, or I just watched his first episode of, uh, Murderville with him in it. And I would love to see... Conan doing more things in other people's systems. Yeah, I think that that's the key, though. Like, Sam Richardson has range, and Conan O'Brien I love, but Conan O'Brien's great because he's Conan O'Brien. He doesn't do, like, many different things. Like, one of the other names that was rattling around my head was, like, Zach Woods, who is absolutely hilarious. But he has, like, one great character that he does a lot of great variations on. So I don't know if I'd want to see an episode like that dedicated to that. 
Now, I think part of me would just love to see Conan play more characters instead of be himself. Because even that Andy Warhol in the Weird Al movie is basically, the joke is that it's Conan O'Brien in an Andy Warhol (laughs) wig. I agree. I know. I know it's crazy, and I know I can't even defend it very well. I would just like to see him play a bunch of different characters for a half hour instead of himself. All right, John, let's take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we'll talk about why this show got canceled. And now a word from our sponsors. The characters was a very creative and as far as I can tell, new outside the box of showcasing new talent and I'm sure from Netflix's point of view, giving them a platform to then see how popular they are in the analytics and then maybe, you know, see if they can catch lightning in a bottle and give someone their own show. Oh, yeah. It almost seemed more like a focus group than a fully fledged show, I think. At times. Right. Which is actually fine. I thought it was really a smart, yeah. cool, unique idea, but... I'm sure that each episode was actually decently expensive. Yeah. I think that each episode had like a budget of $500,000. At least that's what I saw on IMDb. That makes total sense to me. And so this came out in March 2016. And that year is when Netflix really started to focus on stand-up specials. Because they came out with 25 stand-up specials that year as opposed to like HBO, which only put out three in 2016. And in 2017, they doubled that and by my count, put out 54 stand-up Holy specials. Heck. Yeah. So I actually worked as a PA. I worked on five of those. Mm-hmm. I worked on Gad Almalay. I worked on the Lucas Brothers. I worked on Todd Berry, uh, Spicy Honey. And then Ryan Hamilton and this... One woman whose name is escaping me, but she was very funny. Plus, you worked on Middle Ditch and Schwartz. Yeah. Well, that was actually about a year later. and then, Oh, you're thinking tw- specifically 2017. Right. Specifically 2017. And actually, I was wrong. That was like three years later. But um, <laughs> And then it was around the time that I worked the uh, Bo Burnham directed eight Gerard Carmichael special as well. So I was in with this company where they were making a lot of specials. But basically what Netflix did was they plucked the people that used to produce all of the Comedy Central specials, gave them way more money, and then invested a lot of money into it. And they have like 20 of them, which are high-tier stand-ups that they ended up paying that year, like Dave Chappelle, like Seinfeld, Maria Bamford, Louis even. Um, Chris Rock was a couple years. I think his big one was was 2018. Oh, it was? Okay. Uh, well, if maybe they paid him in 2017, okay. if that didn't come out. Gad Almalay actually is like the biggest com- comedian in France who ended up transitioning. He learned English and moved to America so he could try to take it over. And Jerry Seinfeld like took him under his whim- wing. He was a big deal, a big sign uh, for their international base. And 2017 was also the big year where Netflix as a joke sort of emerged as sort of a sub-brand of Netflix. It seemed like they really were investing in comedy, not just as sort of something to plug into their overall system, but as an entity unto itself. 
Right. Which I believe the characters is still under that umbrella, correct? I think technically now, but I think I looked it up and Netflix is a jokes Twitter, which is sort of the focal point for its brand, started in April of 2017, I think. Okay. Well, yeah, it could be a retroactive thing or it at least came out as like Netflix presents the characters. I think that's how that's how it is. It's Netflix presents the characters before Netflix is a joke. But Netflix as a joke has sort of become its own thing. I mean, they had their first live festival in 2022 with across LA with a bunch of huge talent. So starting in late 2016, like you were talking about going into 2017, that it seems to be that this was just before Netflix made this huge, huge, huge push to be a sort of formative fixture of stand-up. Exactly. And so it's a lot cheaper to make uh, stand-up specials. I can tell you right now what they do is they rent out a theater for like four or five days. One day is just setting up the theater. It's all setup day. And then three days in a row, they'll have like different comedians. And then there's two shows per comedian that they literally just do like on Monday you know, it's one person on Tuesday, it's one person. And each day they do two shows, they splice them together to make it a special. And even if that costs them a couple hundred thousand to rent out a beautiful New York Union theater, it's still much cheaper for them to produce five of those as opposed to one half hour episode of the characters for five times as much money. Um, so it makes sense why they did it. And, uh, or I can tell you actually also, uh, Quibi, no, not Quibi. Sorry. What was the, what was the original NBC comedy? CISO. Yes. Wow. CISO was around at the time as well. And streamers were all kind of trying to get into this stand up thing. Just the way that like Amazon's trying to grab the sports right now. Right. Yeah. Back then, everyone was like, who's going to get the the stand-up thing going? Um, and so what some independent producers were doing were just renting out theaters for like a week and doing this, paying performers to um, do a stand-up special. Like in one week, I worked uh, Todd Berry, Bob Saget, and then the guy that was the head writer for The Daily Show for years under John Stewart, and I cannot remember his name right now. Um, but basically, they'd run out of theater, they'd make the specials, and then they'd go out and they'd sell them to the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I don't think the Daily Show guy one ever came out either. So I don't think they... But so they'd go to CISO, they'd go to Netflix, they'd go to HBO, they'd go to Amazon. Uh, the Bob Saget one ended up going out on Amazon, actually. So yeah. it was uh, it was just like an explosion of who is going to take this stand-up thing over and that became a much cheaper easier to measure way of uh, of finding new talent yeah it's a really interesting turning point too and it seems like netflix was able to emerge in that way because they had so much money and they were investing so heavily in these big name talents like come to the network with Chappelle, come to the network with Chris Rock, like 
these are the platforms you want to be on. And that sort of created this big ripple effect. But it seems like, at least stand-up wise, HBO Max is doing a lot of work to make up ground and is giving a lot more opportunities for that sort of mid to low tier stand-up comic, like giving them their first hour in that way that Netflix was doing uh, for the last five years. Exactly. So it just, I think they found a different focus and a less expensive way to do what they were already doing. And I think it was a cool experiment. I guess, John, I'm going to ask you right now, would you renew? I almost didn't renew, but I would say I would renew. I started off the first three episodes, the Lauren Lapkus, John Early, and then the the Henry Zabrowski one. By the end of the Henry Zabrowski one, in my head, I had already kind of written it off, honestly, as cool idea, bad execution. Don't think I'd want to see more of this. But then Caper Lant, Natasha Rothwell, it really, I think, picked up a lot more as it went along and i really really enjoyed a solid half of it to the point that if they made more episodes i would definitely watch them but i would probably watch them selectively yeah or at least start one see how it's going and be like nope yeah like i looked at the where I was at in the Henry Zabrowski one, because that was one that I stopped when I initially watched it. I got four minutes into that episode and I gave up on it. Wow. So you had to watch 10 times as much this time around. (laughs) It, It was not a pleasurable experience for me. But I think that the swings are big. I would give it a go any time. And it was it was really fun to see. It was really fun to see. How about you, Ian? Would you renew? I would. Absolutely. Even the ones I liked, sometimes there were spots where I was a little bit bored or was a little checked out. But guess what? There's another sketch coming along, so don't worry about it. You know, I really liked this idea of showcasing one person for a half hour and giving them couple characters, couple scenes, enough leeway to sort of do creatively what they want to do. I felt like the show in its first season was a great, it was like a good album to me, you know? It started off with uh, Lauren Lapkus, who was a well-known entity, who was fun and professional and did a great job, even if some of it I, you know, wasn't all about, but it, it was a great episode. And then John Early, I felt like was very different, or at least a very different voice, a very different style of comedy, you know. And then Henry's was like, his was the longest. I have to think that his popularity was kind of on the rise. I think that there's a reason they give him that much. The way it closes out, it's very different. Uh, The styles of comedy were very different. You can pick and choose. You can watch a bit of one, decide you don't want it anymore you know, and move on. Um, I would love to see not just new people be given the opportunity to do this, but established comedians. You know, I just think it's a cool idea. I think it's a unique show 
and I would love to see more of it, even if I skip them sometimes. I I think it's an interesting point you just made there because it very much reminds me of those sort of like four-pack DVDs that you would see at like Walmart. You know what I mean? Where, yes. for example, you would buy a this four-pack because it had airplane in it. But the four-pack also had like three men and a little lady. You're probably not going to watch Three Men and a Little Lady if you bought it, it for Airplane. Baby? Three Men and a Little Lady is the sequel to Three Men and a Baby. Get your head out of your ass. And get cultured, please. Shouldn't it be for Airplane the sake two, Three Men and a Little Lady? No, because uh, Airpl- City Slickers 2. Airplane Curly's is the Revenge. reason you buy. Follow the metaphor, not my logic. The You buy it for Airplane. You get Three Men and a Little Lady. Maybe you'll watch Three Men and a Little Lady. Maybe you won't. But hey, at least it's there in case you want to do it. The characters, it brings you in with Lauren Lapkus uh, and, you know, maybe Paul W. Downs for Broad City fans as well. Throw that closer to the end. Uh, They did it similarly with, like, Netflix had, before its big uptick in stand-up, had the stand-ups, too. And they actually did multiple seasons of that. Right. Yeah. And they would have like Nikki Glazer, and they'd pair, that would be one half hour. And they would pair her with, you know, somebody else that wasn't as well known. You know, you get into the rhythm of watching the episodes and you get exposed to something new. And I think that is the real benefit of the sort of collections of shorter things. I think one of the big things that would have, changed though is that each of the episodes would have been shorter because this is definitely still Netflix trying to adhere to standards that were set up by network and cable. I feel like in terms of episode and episode count and episode length. Like I think the reason that I think you should leave works really well is because it's 16 minutes and it's done. Mm-hmm. And I think the characters would have worked a lot better if it was like 16 to 20 minutes. And I think they use this sort of as a, a, a pilot for what I think you should leave ultimately turned into. I think that they were in an experimental time where they could just give creatives the leeway to be like, yeah, you're creative. Like, you know what you're doing? Just go do whatever. But what the mistake here was giving that leeway to incredibly new like people that hadn't done television really or at least made television to that extent you know um i think that if you would have given them the parameters of you have 22 to 25 minutes now go uh and maybe a more guiding hand overall some sort of established showrunner that you know i mean like a lorne michaels type yeah where they know how the sh- they know what works. They know how the show works. You can do what you want, but they're still going to sort of guide you and mold you a little bit into what into a more polished object. I, th- I think it could have really worked well that yeah. way. Yeah, uh, a little bit more of a, a heavier hand that could have just been some sort of consultant to help steer the ship a little bit more. And I think. You know, it's nice to see so many of these people go on to do really wonderful things after this. Like, I just watched uh, Kate Berlant's uh, 
stand-up special on Hulu, uh, Cinnamon in the Wind, that was really funny. And then, like, John Early and Kate Berlant did, co-did a very similar thing that was sketches with a little bit of a character-driven through line uh, called Would It Kill You to Laugh, which was on Peacock also earlier this year. And that was very funny as well. So it seemed like a starting point, and I would have been curious to see how it would develop later on. Yeah. Any final thoughts? I kind of said, tip my hat to what my favorite sketch was, but did you have a favorite sketch? Honestly, I think the first one of Tim Robinson's was so funny. Oh, the Lady Luck Luck scene. Yeah. Because it started out like he looked kind of goofy, but for the most part, it was just like, hey, little joke here, little joke there. Like it took its time and then it exploded. And it took its time, but it didn't take too much time. And then it exploded really hard out the gate. And then it just kept devolving. And I just thought it was like a perfect exercise in what he does well, really. If I were ever teaching a class on heightening, that would be like a perfect example of that. He sets up your expectations and then it's funny enough, but not too funny. And then it just punches you in the face. I love stuff like that. I've got one other special shout out with Natasha Rothwell's episode, how it ended. Uh, the song that she did that was called like, I'm a basic bitch. And it had great cameos. Cecily Strong, Aparna Nancharla, Phoebe Robinson, Chris Gethard, uh, some of my absolute favorites. And that was just a great high energy song to finish out an episode that was also very funny. My final thought is I want to shout out Cole Escola. Oh, so good. It's so good in John Early's episode. And I can attest is also a very nice person. Oh, yay. Well, Ian, where can people find us? You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social. Seems to be taking off a bit. We're getting some followers. Uh, one and done TV. And you can email us one and done pod at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for an episode you want us to cover, please email us the episode suggestion because, frankly, I have found it easier to lose track of the suggestions if it's not just all in one place. So please just email it to us. Um, and uh, what? We have a website. Watch how to with John Wilson, uh, New Year, New You. Feel yourself a little bit and when does the enjoy new it. Uh, season come out? Hopefully, twenty twenty three. One can hope, one can dream. Also, I guess that's it. Then come back to us next week. We'll be talking about Napoleon Dynamite. Until then, I think our characters have taken their final bow, and we will bow out gracefully. Or chaotically. Ian, do you want to bow out chaotically? Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.